Hello, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. Today, I'm looking at the book Diversity in the Workplace by Barry A. Williams, and then in a little while, talking with renowned game designer and historian McGay Baker about the stories we tell and how we tell them. As I was reading a Simon Sinek book for a past show, he mentioned another author who does work similar to his, and he was talking about how his first instinct was to see this person as a competitor, to compare himself negatively to this person. So I went out and I looked up that guy's books. But as I was doing that, I had a realization that while that kind of organic finding of other similar types of leadership books is all well and good. If I really want to expand my experience, if I really want to expand my knowledge base, I have to actively search out people who, you know, white male, culturally visible, TED Talk famous authors don't see as being super similar to themselves. So as a result, I went looking for books and content by authors with radically different voices and experiences, not just from my own, but from those I tend to be able to read normally, to those I have access to. So I've been developing a little list. The first one that I came across was Diversity in the Workplace by Barry A. Williams. The subtitle to this book is eye-opening interviews to jumpstart conversations of identity. When George Floyd was murdered and there were huge protests in 2020, I was really glad to stumble on Emmanuel Acho's YouTube series called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And these conversations weren't necessarily uncomfortable. They were just willing to be. Acho himself was willing to go into uncomfortable territory, and his guests were willing to go there. So maybe the eye-opening marketing hook of the title got me, the subtitle. Definitely the idea of jump-starting conversations, because conversations are what I do, and that really drew me in. That's often the hardest part. And in the end, this book, that subtitle really confused me because that's not what this book does at all. I remember the ridiculous fallout when the all-women actor Ghostbusters came out. Stay with me. There's something relevant. That movie was not a captivating work of art. It was an, no more fun or delightful than the original, but then remakes rarely are. But at the time, one of my daughters put it perfectly. Wouldn't it be great if this kind of all-female, and go ahead and swap in any all-kind of generally unheard group here, underrepresented group, what if those casts and those creative teams were so common that they were allowed to be lousy? Because if you look over time, lots of media by dominant voices has been meh or even garbage 
that never stops the next dominant voice from being heard. Which is all to say that it's okay that this book isn't great. The title is not reflective of the contents. The book wasn't particularly eye-opening, although to be fair, that may be where I am on this learning journey versus other people. It certainly wasn't jump-starty. It was interviews. It was 25 interviews. It felt like someone's well-meaning PhD project stuck into two covers and made into a book. 25 people are split up into underrepresented groups. At least that's the premise. Challenges with race, gender, LGBTQ+, ability, age, religion, and culture. And I feel like maybe the author wanted to jumpstart conversations. These are not conversations. <laughs> Every single interview has the same exact robotic questions. There is zero engagement with these 25 people. There is no clarification. They could have just been filling out a form and maybe they did. They're not, there's, these aren't conversations. It is a way to data collect, sure, but it makes for an incredibly boring book. Also, there are real issues with the representation included in the book. It's about diversity on some axes, but everyone in it is from California. And almost everyone in, that is interviewed works in tech. I said gender, but really it's about women. Uh, there's not a real diversity of gender representation. A huge missing chasm in this is that while she talks about ageism, it only covers people who are considered too young for tech. And I don't deny that that's probably a terrible place to be because, you know, condescension is a drag. But people who are perceived to be too old, and especially because this is so tech-centered, the author could definitely have gotten some interesting stories there, but those people are just missing, probably because they can't get jobs in tech at all. Women over 40, those with families, are considered unhirable and are, in fact, not hired. None of them are here. It's a glaring omission, especially in a section called ageism, addressing ageism. The religion one super confused me because there are five people interviewed and three of them are Christians who are complaining about religious discrimination as Christians. Christianity is the dominant cultural religious force in the United States. This is not a voice for the disenfranchised in the workplace. And of those three, two of them worked in the liquor industry. And their entire narrative was around Christians hating drinking. And how 
uncomfortable a position that puts them in or how they have to defend against that. That is super weirdly unnuanced. That is very specific to specific kind of sects. Christianity in general, as a broad thing, is not anti-liquor. Many, 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 I want to say most of the sects of Christianity involve wine drinking. Of those, tons of them have no problem whatsoever with the liquor industry. So the idea that like these people's very specific kind of Christianity didn't, it, it's, that's, that just seemed a strange, strange choice. And then to do it again, and then a third time, very strange. The book has nothing about discrimination against body type. Not tall, short, not fat, thin, not uh, pregnancy, not, not bald hair, nothing, nothing, nothing. So it missed a huge mark there. I'm not sure that that would have been a good place to throw it in with ability, disability, but this is a real thing as well. And I don't also, I know that she can't cover everything, but again, it's a diversity book. So it seems like Williams or her editor could very easily have gotten in there and said, there's like loads of other places we should be exploring here, or we should limit some of the ways we talk about this book. Except for an awareness that people who do not fit the sort of madmen, or maybe it's better to say Silicon Valley style workplace that our culture, and oh boy, especially tech, is set up for, that people who don't fit have to do a ton of unpaid emotional labor. And I think that is a worthy observation because that's true. And that also applies to anyone. That That's one of those things that can be extrapolated across all industries. The people who don't fit into the prevailing sense of the culture in this kind of workplace are going to have to do a lot of exhausting, unpaid emotional labor. And if there's any way to reduce that burden, to first of all become aware of that burden, and then to reduce that burden, your workplace is going to move move more smoothly. Your voices, diverse voices, are going to contribute better. The employees are not going to burn out. If that's the message, then great. I'll tell you this, the book does nothing to jumpstart conversations. You'll have to do all of that for yourself. It was interviews, the same interview questions, the answers, the end. I got to a point where I'm going to make an educated guess that besides possibly being somebody's PhD thesis, although if it was... She didn't do any of her conclusions. There's no summation. There's nothing else. It does have the sense of an exercise that somebody did with the idea of going out and doing corporate trainings. 
In that context, maybe this book is helpful. Maybe if this person comes in to work with your teams and she hands you her book as part of her thing and your team reads the book, they'll all be able to gather back and say, oh, you know, here's some thoughts about, you know, becoming aware that this person is carrying all the stuff. Or I didn't realize that even a helpful comment about someone's hair or what I thought was a complimentary comment about someone's hair would be so fraught or someone else saying, I thought that being positive about, this is a big one, being positive about uh, a model minority. So some of the stories are from Asian people saying there's this weird expectation of us. So there may be people who are like, I thought that wasn't a bad thing. So great. If that's the case, it might be useful for that. It's horribly mistitled. And in the end, it's a meh book. But you know what? It's fine. It's super short. So it's not going to take any terrible time out of your day. Williams doesn't have to represent all diverse voices. She doesn't have to represent more than a couple limited people on each thing like she does. She doesn't even have to create a good book. She's allowed to be meh. She's allowed to be boring. I would like to see a day where there are so many great books by marginalized voices on the bookshelf that this one just lands on the remainder table with the avalanche of mediocre mainstream white guy business leadership books. Next up, McGay Baker. Full disclosure, I like to let conversations take their own paths, but they usually sort of orbit closely around leadership in the workplace. This one wanders away through newly discovered shared love of history rabbit holes, but ultimately, at its core, is the stories we choose to tell, who we choose to tell them about, how we see ourselves and how we tell those stories. I'm here today with Megay Baker, a historian throughout the Pioneer Valley and a game developer, which is very cool. Thanks for being here today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So this show is all about balancing work, creativity, and community because it's so easy to get really focused on one and then in despair because you're missing the other two. And I'm just yeah. loving the sort of different distinctions between what you do. So pick one of those and let's find out. Okay. Well, they're very, I mean, my museum work 
in local history museums up and down the valley and my game design work both really deal with that question of community and uh -huh. creativity and storytelling and how they intersect that when you are putting together an exhibit at a museum one of the things you're looking at one of the things i'm looking at is how do i amplify an underrepresented voice how do i bring forward a story that is that hasn't been told or hasn't been examined from that particular lens when i'm doing game design work part of that is how do i support other people in telling those stories making those original uh, original stories oh that is interesting i would not have put the footprints together i didn't put the footprints yeah. together <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It, there, it, it's, it's a surprising overlap to me. It's not something I necessarily set out to do. It's just something that <laughs> happens to exist is that I really feel that, you know, storytelling is part of the innate expression of humanity, your one's human nature and like playing games and how, how we find out things about the world, starting from really infancy, like a young child discovering the world through play. And then like modeling how they might, like, how do you do a thing? So much of that is learning through play and learning through play acting and, you know, making stuff up with your friends. And uh, <laughs> that to history is like, how do we take facts that we know or that we think we know and how do we analyze them and turn around so that we might illuminate different parts of the story? Right. It's one of the things that I find most interesting in terms of working with history is that how it's very easy to have a conception of history as a settled thing, like we know about this. But the reality is there's just way more that we don't know about. It's so much like an iceberg, you know, what what winds up saved in in any museum is just such a, a particular portion. Yeah. There's there's one phrase I really like about the the Iron Age or Bronze Age, really. The Bronze Age was also the Wood Age, but since wood doesn't survive in the historic record, uh -huh. we don't know, you know? Anyway. No, that totally makes sense because I remember enormous excitement. And I, I only remember it because I happened to visit at the particular time, but that historic Deerfield was really thrilled because they had a pair of working man's jeans. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, big deal. And they were like, no, it is a big deal because these were always worn until there was nothing left whereas yes. the robes and the beautiful things that are all historical are just because nobody wore them more than once and then put them in mm -hmm. a closet and i was like oh 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 i get like the rarity wow yeah yeah it's it's really amazing to work with old textiles which is my specific focus of my work actually oh, really oh interesting. yeah <laughs> because you know there's a a little boy's it's called a skeleton suit it's from the you know 19th century and really it just means like a little snug fitting one piece suit and it was play clothes and it's on exhibit now in memorial hall in deerfield you can go see it and Aww. yeah it, it's amazing but one of the things that's amazing is that it is play clothes it's not a, a fancy you know worn to a sibling's wedding or otherwise something that was special enough that you would save it away it, it's like a sturdy little white clothes you know outfit yeah and it was really an amazing process to do the conservation work on that and prepare it for display and it ties in very much for me that sort of work 
to that sort of community and and story and creativity because I'm when I'm working with historic textiles, I I have to examine them as close as I can through the lens of the person who worked on them before. Hmm. You know, what choices did they make? Why did they make those choices? What does the item say about what they're doing? Like I'm working on a piece right now in Hatfield, the Hatfield Museum, that is a set of quilt blocks that was made in the 1930s, but maybe some additions were made later. Just looking at like the what the handwork was, what the paper, like there it's English paper piecing, so it's put around a, a newspaper template that's hmm. thank goodness datable evidence. It's just all these neat things, but places where you can see this is somebody else working on this just because of the craftsmanship. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't not make things. <laughs> I can't <laughs> tell stories. So there you well, go. Well, the thing that was interesting with when you started out saying about the storytelling, there seems to be like this, uh, not a barrier, but a speed bump of overcoming what we think we know. Mm-hmm. And how yeah. how do you approach that when you're doing sort of visual displays? That's a really good question. I think part of that in that particular light is by being really honest in our interpretive text mm. and presenting here are, here are the questions we have about this item that we don't know and what um, eliciting questions you know what does this bring up for you how do you you know right there in the text what does this make you think of mm. that to, in the interpretive text something that's happened in the last 30 years but it definitely is a sort of increasing curve I think is really a switch from sort of an object-based description of, you know, ceramic jar circa 1700 has these dimensions donated by this person to, which is really an object-based description, to a story-based description, which is, it would be something like jar, ceramic jar used commonly to hold votive candles for offerings in catholic churches in salem massachusetts circa 1700 okay so that you have a i mean and i just completely made that up i don't even know if there were catholic churches probably not in massachusetts in 1700. Yeah, probably not probably not till the mid-1800s probably not. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good bet actually <laughs> but you see my point i do yeah 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 and Talk so that's the about their use almost. Yeah. Well, what's the story? You know, why do we have this? And I, I just designed a little, a little role playing game this earlier this month. That was for a, a little game jam. You know, can you fit a role playing game on a business card? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, you can. So much fun. But the card that I—it's called "How the Story Ends." And it's a, it's a, an archival tag, like I use all the time when I'm tagging stuff in museums and you write the name of the item and the dates relative to the item. You pick an item in your home, you decide whether you're going to tell the true story or a a fantastical story about the item. You write the name of the item, the dates that pertain to it, as much of the story as will fit on the card, tie that to the item and then at some point later in you know whenever 
cut the string and stick the tag in a random book. Huh. Yeah, because what I'm looking at there, like the point of the game is that it, when you disconnect the story from the signifiers, from the, the people or the places or the items that form that story, it's lost. It becomes a table as opposed to this was your great aunt's table and we have it right. because. Yeah. Right. It's funny because that the idea of it becoming your story is also so fraught because I always think about Elizabeth Warren getting in mm. all this trouble saying, well, <laughs> you know, we have some Native American blood. But the fact is, she was probably told that as a child. Like, you know, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sitting here in, you know, on unceded land of the, of the Pecumtuk and Abenaki people. Right. You know, the treaty was broken in 1725 and has been broken every day since then. You know, one of the things that's true is that family mythology takes hold really quickly, really easily, and is really hard to root out. Right. All it takes is somebody telling an anecdote. And when you're telling an anecdote, you are not telling necessarily the factual truth. Mm Mm-hmm. My grandfather told great anecdotes. They were great, funny little stories. And they had truth in them. Right. But they weren't true, necessarily true. But all it takes is hearing an anecdote once or twice as a kid. And that just sinks in as the truth. And then when you grow up, you tell that as the truth to your kids who then, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really hard. To dig back. This is why genealogy is such a huge entangled mess right. everywhere because everybody's like digging into their genealogy and there's all these like DNA sequencing things now. I was just going to say before those, you just <laughs> said whatever someone had told you and there was no right. way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like this is a piece where the story can get lost, right? Because if if we went back, you and I, and we went back enough generations to find a connection. First of all, chances are good we would. Yeah. Six. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not hard. It would be fun. We should try it sometime. Yeah. Be um, but we we go back a bit and all it takes for that history to be lost or that connection to be lost initially is that like the family documents go down with one child and not the other. So like your great 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 whatever got the family bible. Minded. And then we don't know that we're related until we really dig into it, right? On that, you want a hilarious footnote? Mm. My grandfather was one of the kids born in Ireland in the 1880s, and they had decided that too many kids were going unregistered. So uh-huh. they, the government's idea was, we'll fine the families after six months if they haven't registered some of their kids or one of their kids. And so out of like the 13 kids, only like five of them are registered because when you have 13 kids, you're overwhelmed. You're too overwhelmed and too poor to pay the registration fee. Yeah. So half of them have birth certificates or five of them, I guess, not even half have birth certificates. And the other ones are just like, well, they existed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just remember thinking unintended consequence right there. Right. And like my great grandfather came through Ellis Island and had his name changed to be more anglicized, you know? So like 
luckily somewhere we know that, but it's a real tangle. And like, so one of the things in terms of game design is like everything we do in game design, everything I do in game design is, you know, it's, it's not that outrageous. Okay. Magic may be outrageous. Maybe, but all of the other strange happenstance and like coincidences and like weird, unusual journeys that people go on and like quests for knowledge. It's this exact sort of thing, right? We want to know the story. We want it to make a good story. We want to feel as it's a compelling story and that we are part of it. Yeah. Yeah, when I was when I went to do some of that genealogy in Ireland, I was lucky enough to meet up with an eighty something year old cousin and he used to shout out, Good enough to be true every time yeah. we found something. Definitely. <laughs> and that leads to like this really fascinating thing where if you don't know your history or you don't know the story, at what point does a an imagined story carry weight? You know? Mm. If if you lost your family, you know, via Holocaust or ad- adoption or separation or just a choice to be like, this is a family that is toxic to me and I, I need to sever that. Anywhere, anywhere on that spectrum of like terrible genocide mm. to this is this is a choice I'm making. At what point is there an option to reweave some supportive story for yourself? just tuning in, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity, and a conversation with game designer and historian McGay Baker. Well, that was always one of the American dreams. I mean, there's the house and the picket fence one, but the other is this Mm -hmm. endless capacity to reinvent yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without, you know, class distinction or without Mm -hmm. being trailed by your past. Right. Right, right, right. We don't talk about that piece of it anymore, but it's a big part of sort of the way we see ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that opportunity to endlessly reinvent oneself. Yeah. Like, we we talk about that with kids in school. Like, as you're going, it's like, oh, you're going to a new school. You're going to into seventh grade. You get to be a different person. And you're going to college, and, like, you get to be totally new. And you do, and how amazing is that? Yeah. But there's also the piece of reweaving of, like, oh, I really, I I don't have these ancestral lineages and how do I reconnect and how do I reclaim some of that how do I how do I build for myself a story of rootedness and connection and like belonging for myself using whatever I may have and that's where you come up with you know people deciding like okay this chair I bought this chair and it's like I bought this chair at a secondhand shop somewhere i really like it and it signifies for me the grandfather that i never knew or whatever mm. oh that's kind of nice yeah and then that becomes grandpa's chair <laughs> to my kids or grandkids and then it gets passed down as grandpa's chair <laughs> you know attributed to the actual person possibly and then you're just then it's just confusing again yeah diy heirloom yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's one of the weird things because I encourage that, like document that you've made it yourself, but also like 
working with historic textiles, I often get a question of like, how to, what do I do with them? You know, someone, someone loves antique quilts and has some now, and what do they do with them? And, you know, consult on how to um, display or use, but if it's separated from its original story and provenance of like Mm. who made it, when and where, then it has value to you either because of the story for you that has meaning. Like I bought this at a little boutique in New York city when I was there on my graduation trip or whatever. Right. Or it has value to you as an intrinsic, an intrinsic aesthetic object, in which case use it. Right. Right. You know, I have things that came down to me from my great grandmother after my grandmother passed away that I had never seen because they were tucked away. Mm. Beautiful needlework that I never saw in my grandmother's house because it was a wedding present to her that was too beautiful and too good to be used. Oh, right. Right, of course. You know, and... That's how, it gets, that's how it goes to a museum. <laughs> right, right there. Little yeah. Circle. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the things that, it, that I wrestle with now with, with people who are looking to donate things to a museum because they've, they were things that were tucked away at grandma's house and grandma has passed on and now they have them and they're like, I love them, but I don't have any room for them. And my kids don't want them because they have zero connection. Right. If you have things that you treasure in your home, use them and share them with your friends and family and loved ones so that they may also treasure them so that at some point they have somewhere to go down the line. Well, that's really true. And it it speaks to something that I've noticed. And there's probably a, you know, academic historian word for this. I always think of it as like the historical gap when Mm -hmm. something is just garbage to you but wait Mm -hmm. another 20 years and it'll be vintage and then it'll be historically desirable. But right now it's garbage. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Happens to buildings, happens to items. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like, it happens to museum collections, you know, where one of the, one of the things I work with in the Pioneer Valley, little local history museums who, you know, many of them have not enough staff and not enough space and are very aware that history didn't end in World War II. Right. But they, like, with not enough staff and not enough space, what do you do? How do you do it? How do you be, you know, how do you have the forward thinking to a session into your collection, an answering machine from 1990? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got to be really, and a lot of people don't like don't have that in terms of thinking like what they might offer to a museum and like it's hard to tell people no we really can't take your family members dress uniform from world war ii or vietnam i mean vietnam we can take probably because vietnam is still underrepresented but like there's floods of stuff that we can't accept right Right. i remember someone pointing this out about robert frost the poet Mm -hmm lived in like 40 different houses during yeah. his lifetime and at what point do you take 40 houses off the market just to say he spent 10 minutes in them? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's kind of great <laughs> just 
also kind of ridiculous. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like getting to the point of like, what tells the story? How do we tell a nuanced and complete version of the story without having to keep every single spoon? Yeah. Because we have to have a way to deaccession, you get rid of things, move on through things, let things go emotionally and physically. Right. In a way that is challenging because you know we're caught in this cycle where we're in like really pushed to create, 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 and you know, produce, 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 consume, consume, consume. And finding the space to be mindful in how we do those things. So like what do we hold on to and what do we let go of? And like how to do that in any sort of actual way is really challenging. Yeah, that de- that deaccession piece is really interesting. Libraries seem to do it okay. They have trained staff to do that. Yeah, they do. But also, you know, there's going to be a book sale every year. Yep. Yep. Walk by and go see. I never think about that for like historical houses or or yeah. you know yeah. societies. The idea yep. of saying, "Oh, we are actually going to get rid of all but the last spoon." <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really it's also it's so much more fraught because when people donate things to a museum, they're doing it because they see the value in a thing, mm. but they cannot care for it in their home, or they don't feel like there's someone who will care for it in a way that they want it cared for in terms of passing it down to the next generation. And there often is that generation gap where an interest in family history will skip a generation. Right. Happens very often. So being like the more open that an institution can be with their deaccession policy and like here is what we're getting rid of and or you know here is what we here's what we can no longer care for and why. Right. So what do we do with that? You know, is it something that we can then offer to the membership of the institution as a, as a, like, I don't know, do we have a a members only auction of here are, you know, China teacups that like we have service for 12 from five different sets of service for 12 from the civil war era. Yeah. And is preventing us from bringing in anything after that because we're out of space. So where do we say, okay, we're going to cut all of these down to service for six, which is a more reasonable amount to display, you know, in an exhibit. And we're going to offer to the membership. It's, you know, it's it's complex. It's really complex. It is. It's particularly funny to me that you uh, just said teacups in China, because I, I am a massive museum fan. I love them. I raised kids who love them. It's just like, to me, it's just like a really great day to spend. However, there are several museums whose china and like cup collection is just so vast Mm -hmm. that when I've stumbled into that particular wing, I'm like turning around like, nope, nope, I'm not spending the next four hours doing this. Yeah, It happened to the V&A to me. It happened to me. I think it was Victoria and Albert. Oh my God. The VNA has something like 4,000 collars. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Just of like men's and women's 19th century neck, you know, when everybody had like five interchangeable collars or lace collars or standing collars or falling collar, whatever. They have way too freaking many of them. Yeah. Like I love that museum, but I I, I stumbled (laughs) into the China and was like, I'm out. 
nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then it like, that's a, like, but it's such a, a strong conversation to have about like, w- what story does this object hold or these objects hold? How do we make sure that this is represented and, and acknowledging when a story has been represented enough? Well, and it's a, it's a silly thing in, in the sense that, you know, you're right. We don't fund these. We don't, you know, there's nobody to work on these. And yet the first thing that happens when you have a Netflix, you know, series is going to be, wow, how did they get that so wrong? Or <laughs> wow, they're, they're actually, they're now doubling down. And I don't mean Bridgerton, which was a fantasy and you'd have to be insane yeah. to think they were trying. But, you know, some of these ones where you're like, you are going to now solidify and make concrete this view of history that involves a, a, a couple of like real glaring problems, bad things. Like, and it's and it's because really problems. Yeah, because the reference materials are compromised and you don't know they're compromised because yep. to begin with, it was just somebody's. Yep closet idea yeah. Yeah, yeah i know yeah, cor- yeah. corsets end up like this a lot of times where they'll put oh, it- like you have no idea how much i'm like like i'm here like yes you know? yeah <laughs> like we could we could do a whole nother episode about bridgerton uh, yeah, and the corsets just about the corsets you don't in bridgerton. put a, you don't put a wasp waist corset underneath an empire waist gown i mean i just i mean the first two okay. and a half minutes going, you also <laughs> you don't put a corset against your skin mm. right, anyway there's a whole robe underneath yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. bridgerton spoilers <laughs> here <laughs> Just no. Wrong. <laughs> Top to bottom. That was a funny Oddly, one. like, the, the people in the background, like, the, the characters yes. that never speak, I read much that. more authentic. I what read is that. It? I read that. The corset one's funny, though, because as with many things like Pirates of the Caribbean, it was the first two minutes, and I have seen enough YouTube videos that the first thing I did was go, no! Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> but here's the thing. I really want to have a, a corset that is a regency at the top and basque waist at the bottom i don't know what that is what's that uh, the basque waist is an 18 is like 1900s that makes that it's really kind of a long line you know it, it's the hourglass but the bottom of the of basque is is much lower on the hips like much mm. lower mm. and it's just like why not anyway this is very <laughs> sideways but it like is. that's part of the thing of like history and creativity and storytelling and role-playing and connections is that it winds up with like a brain <laughs> that just is like it's constant connectivity because everything mirrors everything and everything is interconnected and like just to round it from the make the, the bridgerton costuming history <laughs> jump okay game of thrones which i did not watch for many reasons but the level of oh this is what history must have been like yeah and the way that that then gets interpreted in role-playing game design ah is enough to make i i'm just mm, because one of the things about history is that it's complex and messy and it's always with us and we're always there's always more that we're finding out and discovering so so many of our perceptions are just based on the little bit of like the little bit of information we had at the time that we now know is different. But when that becomes codified and calcified into this is what the Middle Ages were like, right? Then you wind up with things that double down on that and create fantasy settings or or 
like whatever that then perpetuates misinformation and perpetuates ideas of oppression and objectification and like homophobia and racism and 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 even even just like things like stepping way back from that things like basic hygiene (laughs) people washed people have always washed sorry they've always washed right anyway yeah there were rivers there were creeks there were streams there were buckets i mean (laughs) there's soap like people have cloth you know it's it's just a hilarious thing like like one of like re-encountering the stories we tell and the sort of myths we inhabit intentionally or unintentionally like constantly re-examining that of like what is a story that i am perpetuating in myself yeah and how can i how can i maybe not keep perpetuating that story well, well yeah um i when i so i homeschooled my kids for mm-hmm. about about a decade apiece and mm-hmm. One of the books I stumbled on midway was Lies My Teacher Told Me. Yeah, it's a great book. A fun read and really yeah. got me. I mean, I was already I was already thinking about some of these things. I worked, I did some graphic design with professor of African-American literature over at Amherst College. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming in and talking to her and I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. Is it, are you going to have time to meet? It's February. I'm assuming you're busy. And she said, that is one of the most infuriating things in the world. I am very busy all of February. I am not nearly as busy from March to January. And that makes me angry every time I think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I really kind of took that in and took it back and, and was like, you know, that's it. When I do that, there's going to be no month dedicated specifically to any group because they're either right. all integrated. Like they happened in history. They didn't happen in a separate additional mm-hmm. chapter to be brought out and, and you know, yeah, pushed out. But so, but you know, the, the sort of idea that there's a civics, I guess, aspect to history that doesn't have to exist and doesn't exist in like, like you don't learn citizenship from chemistry. I think that's one of the things from that Mm -hmm. lies my teacher told me. They're like, they don't Mm -hmm. tell you like you have to believe in these national myths and defend them, you know, to the death, right or wrong. But we do insist on that from history and we make it so that it's impossible to learn history in a really engaging way if we do that and we learn mm-hmm. it wrong, then we defend it wrong, and then we leave all these people out, and then everyone's mm-hmm. bored of the whole thing. And mm-hmm. it, it's, I mean, I, I can't quite understand. I, I do, I've had teachers make history very boring. And at the sure, time, I remember easy. thinking, oh, yeah, but I remember thinking, this is People Magazine, like through the ages. You have to work to make this. The only way to make this boring is if you insist on overlaying it with like, a citizenship national myth thing. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that's hardest for people to understand, like one of the, like one of the things to do is like history started this morning. Hmm. You know, the history is right there. It's not ancient hundreds of years ago, decades ago, you know, <laughs> all the way back to January of 2020. <laughs> it's, it's right here and like that we can that if we can identify the through story and this is something that i work on a lot in exhibits is if i have an exhibit of corsetry like colonial era 1730s corsetry on up through like 
I want to bring that on up through. And then I definitely want like a 1950s girdle in there. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want like a bra from the 70s because it, it has to like if you don't see the through line, it's disconnected and you don't know why. And like my kids can tell you, I I will rant about lighting in movies and video games because candles were hard to make and you did not use that many of them. But if you don't know that, you don't know it. Right. You know? And it's 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 easy to make history a topic of long ago. And I feel like it often gets taught that way because the one of the ways that we tend to start teaching history is like let us start with the ancient civilizations in mesopotamia i'm like okay this is great but also like there's so many other ways to do it and then finding different people's ways in like is your way in food history or textile history or military or architectural history or are you really into animals let's talk about the like how different breeds of dogs were evolved to or, or, or were bred for different purposes in different times in history like finding your way in is a big thing and like most subjects are like this math is like this and english is like this and science is like this so that you just you know needing to find the way in yeah and give people the options to find the ways in that, that grab them i remember fairly um depressing moment in college where I was taking a survey history course and some it was on American early American and I said Mm -hmm. okay I'm very familiar with classical music I was Mm -hmm. trained as a classical violinist I was in orchestras and stuff and I said to the by mistake I said it to the TA I said can you you hook up what we're talking about with the time and music because I'll get a better understanding of like what was going on and she said that's not on the test yeah oh my god that's like ready to walk out yeah and i ended know. up i ended up bringing in knitting and i knit a sweater that semester <laughs> i was like yeah. i should get something out of this but yeah and for me i was like why why lady stop because it, it it separates out like history like any subject doesn't happen in a vacuum like our our human experience is so multifaceted that of course it connects to a different billions of other things like it, it that's just the way it goes there's a there's a a book the fabric of civilization mm. that's fairly new i don't have it to hand but i would i could anyway it's fantastic and it's why we call twitter threads twitter threads oh that's nice it's why we talk about things being woven into our the fabric of our lives that that there's so much involved in history that we get taught is about war and conflict and great men who've innovated things and maybe later eventually you know women or you know non-binary people whatever you know as we as we try but it's actually about like how do we keep ourselves warm enough (laughs) how do we keep ourselves clothed and fed anyway and like tying it like that thing with music tying it to broader human experience yeah this is why it is this way like you know that we are talking over this zoom call on these computers is absolutely inexorably connected to how weaving works 
yeah it it just it's it's it floors me every time i just really love that oh lovely everything's connected (laughs) and when you said that it reminded me of the bell telephone cover when i was really small they Mm -hmm. came out with a, a telephone cover that was like 16 people on it and the first one has i think they're just shouting and the second one yeah. turns and they are writing a letter and the third one and ultimately it was tin cans and then yeah that early phone and then a bunch of the because it was bells so it was a bunch of different versions of phones and the last one was the future that we were so sure was going to happen immediately and it was this yeah <laughs> And it, it happened. It did. Because we imagined, you know, someone imagined that it could. And that's kind of amazing. It is. You know? It is. I had that kind of profound sort of wait a second moment last time I, last time I was on a flight. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking mm-hmm. every single, like, bracket, screw, every single thing around me was once just someone's little glimmer of an idea. And sometimes yeah. I kind of get so floored, <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and we're now seven thousand feet up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> somebody had to make it. Somebody had to make a machine that made it. Somebody had to do all the quality stuff. I mean, really, just the amount of human thought and human capital. I often yeah. feel like we don't appreciate history in those senses either as evidenced by yeah. me saying stuff was garbage in that 20 year you know <laughs> dip <laughs> but it's also like human thought and imagination but also and i love to say this like human around well let's mess around and find out yeah i don't know just you're here to goof off and make stuff you yeah. know that's you know and like get together with a friend and figure out what you can come up with yeah that's you know, amaze yourself, amaze each other, like play to find out what happens, you know? And like, that's, that's the surprise. That's the, the, the cool magic of it is that you can do that sort of thing. And one of the things that your descriptions of your work has been evoking is I read an essay and I don't know where it was in something, something on the big side. And it was about a donation, I think, to the Smithsonian of clothing. Mm -hmm. And the era of the clothing was all like F. Scott Fitzgerald yeah, okay. time. I don't think it was necessarily his or his wife's clothes, but it might have been. But somebody who was alive during during the 20s. Yeah. And they described this box, this dress that's in the box. It's like a plum colored dress and it's wrapped in tissue paper and it has it had some brass fittings to it so buttons or little buttons or, or hook and eyes yeah. hook and eyes but also like a couple of decorative things that were sewn on it sure and they were saying you know the person who wore this affected this dress by wearing it yeah it still carries a memory of her mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. will always like she is long dead but there's this almost ghost version of her with that goes along with this dress it was just this beautiful haunting thing about just walking through the parties over taking off the dress caring for it putting it away and yet remaining with it and it remaining with her forever till it's it's just dust (laughs) and one of the things that's interesting with that is like the, the the demand to meet the artifact 
impact as it is. Yeah. Like having that, having that dress come into a museum and like, it's, it's such a gentle, careful process, you know, whenever I'm working with an, an old garment, because garments are three-dimensional things and they're, they're living, they're, they're things that have had a life, you know, a living, they have been a garment on a living body. Right. It's different than a tablecloth. A tablecloth can carry different stories, often about stains, but, <laughs> but a garment that's been on a living body, it has that imprinture, you know, it has sweat stains or stress where a button has pulled or right. all these little things. And if you force something back into like, well, this, this once fit on a, a body. So here's a mannequin and we'll force it to fit on that mannequin. Right. You may damage the piece because it has become accustomed to a different shape. And some of that's through the, the wear on the piece. Some of it's through the storage and it's a, a long process of gently working with the, the piece to see what stories it wants to tell about you know, where it's been and how it's been treated. And there's a lot to do to, you know, also then you hit up against like staffing and resources. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're like working for the Louvre and you can, you know, throw a very large amount of staff hours, paid staff hours at recreating a garment or restoring a garment, that's one thing. But if you're in Greenfield (laughs) and you're like, well, (laughs) this is what we got. It's a different scene. I'd like to thank McGay Baker for today. Tune in next time for the second half of our conversation. You can find past episodes, follow us on social media, look at the show notes, and get links to McGay's work on our website, working9tothrive.com, and that's with the number nine.